For many of us, in fact, I would venture to guess probably for all of us, the heat this week has not been very enjoyable. I suppose that it's possible that for some of you, you do actually enjoy the heat. If that is the case for you, I don't know how you look yourself in the mirror every morning, but if that's you, may I recommend the Marathon of the Sands. It has a French name, but I'm not very good with French, so I'm not going to try to butcher it and pronounce it. But the English pronunciation is the Marathon of the Sands. This is a 250-kilometer, 155-mile marathon through the sands of the Sahara Desert. It is fully self-supported. What that means is there are no race crews lining the way, giving you water bottles as you go. Everything and anything that you need, you are responsible for carrying on your back with your supplies as you run. The race normally takes a number of days, including at night, sleeping and resting in the elements, only to get up and run the next day with temperatures yet again in the Sahara reaching 115 to 120 degrees. Yeah, you would have to be crazy to do that. But I'm sure it's a dry heat, right? And that makes all the difference. I don't think any of us are going to be running the Marathon of the Sands anytime soon. But if we aren't careful, we can slip in a mindset that views the Christian life kind of like the Marathon of the Sands. Slogging through sand, extreme heat, carrying heavy burdens on your back. The Christian life is a marathon. This is a biblical picture that the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, gives us. But it is a marathon where we are supplied with all that we need, not having to carry it on our back, but through our Lord supplying it to us every step of the race. What I want to put before you from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 10, is the following. Brothers and sisters, press on by the gospel at work in you and through you as you serve God and wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Let me say this again. Brothers and sisters, Press on by the gospel at work in you and through you as you serve God and wait for the return of Jesus Christ. As you look at verse 1, this is a fairly standard introduction to one of the Apostle Paul's letters. He was the author and Silvanus or Silas, as he is also known, and Timothy. They were protégés of Paul's in the ministry. These men were known to the church in Thessalonica, and these three joined in sending their greetings. You read verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians of God, uh, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Just note here, we don't have time to dive into it deeply, but there are two locations. One temporal and less significant than the other, the church of the Thessalonians. And one more permanent and the anchor of their existence. In God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church of the Thessalonians, in, placed in, spiritually, housed, rooted in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us understand horizontal position is of secondary lesser significance than vertical position in Christ. Today, the city of Thessaloniki is the second largest city in Greece. It was and still is a vibrant coastal metropolis, where Christianity was out of step with the ideas of the culture of the populace of its day. From its birth, the fledgling church in Thessalonica was sailing into strong winds of opposition and affliction at the hands of those who were loyal to the Roman Empire and to Caesar. 
And the people of Thessalonica had no room for these Christians that were worshiping another king, a higher king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the Thessalonian church was what? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was theirs? Grace and peace. There's a word here for anyone seeking grace and peace. It's there in Jesus Christ. Come to Him and receive it. 1 Thessalonians was written because the Apostle Paul loved the church in Thessalonica and he had been concerned that they were going to be undone by the severe opposition and affliction they were enduring. Yet we will see later in this letter that Paul has received word that they are pressing on. The ship of their faith has held throughout the storm. And he wants to rejoice with them. He wants to give thanks to God with them. And he wants to exhort them to anchor their minds and their hearts to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet get this, brothers and sisters. Not in the church in Thessalonica, but in the church in Citrus. In the mysterious yet manifold wisdom of God, we now receive this exhortation to press on in the Gospel. So we're going to make our way through these ten verses and we're going to see six ways that we press on. We'll lead through them bang, 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 bang. Okay? Six ways that we press on in the Gospel. First, the Gospel enables us to press on. Or six ways the Gospel helps us press on. First, the Gospel, the scope of the Gospel enables us to press on. That is, the scope of the Gospel enables us to press on. We see this in verses 2 and 3. When you hear, this, when you hear reference to the Gospel, you might think it pertains only to the means by which a person becomes a Christian. He or she repents of their sins. They believe that Jesus has died to atone for their sins. He's been resurrected, and they know that they will be in heaven with Him one day. And this is true. But what we have to understand as followers of Christ is that the Gospel is not just the doorway whereby we enter the Christian faith. It is actually the household in which we live the Christian faith. It's the home in which we dwell. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul speaks of how he and those who are with him give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the active living nature of the Thessalonians trusting God here? Grounded in Christ, therefore grounded in the Gospel. Our work, our service, our living, it is born of faith. What does this mean, born of faith? Looking backward at events that have already happened. Events of the Bible, namely the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus, the Gospel. And our work in faith is born of that. So any love that we, experience, uh, that we exhibit, any labor of love, any sacrifice we make for the sake of others, any giving of ourselves for the good of the church, um, or for those who do not yet know God through Christ, it's all a labor of love that comes from the overflow of the Gospel at work in our hearts. And the steadfastness of hope that is ours, a hope that is unshakable, unbreakable, incorruptible, imperishable, it is rooted in Christ who is ours and who will yet return for His church. The future blessings of the Gospel, they are ours in Christ. Now, but we can easily dis develop a disconnect in our lives, can't we? Do you believe the events of Christ's life and work? That He really died on a cross? He really walked out of a tomb one day? But... Do these have a hard time having bearing upon your present interactions with others? Or the general disposition of your heart as you consider the future is one of gloom and despair and disappointment? May God give grace that the past that we profess would shape the future that, we, that still lay ahead. 
You try to live in love towards others today. But you realize that people are difficult to love. Relationships are hard. And so exerting yourself for the sake of others who don't seem to reciprocate seems pointless. You expend, you give of yourself so much, and yet it's so exhausting with so little reward. The Gospel is how our tanks are refilled and we are able to overflow in love towards those around us. Do you have hope for the future and eternity? But it's really just a vague sense of everything will be okay. One day it will be better than now. That's true, but if we're not careful, we can disconnect the future from the work of Christ in establishing His reign over His creation and in the eternal delight that will be ours, and we can lose sight of the absolute uh, and actual blessings of the Gospel that belong to us. So we pray, may God give us the grace of the infinite reach of the Gospel from eternity past to eternity future with all power even today to give grace to our hearts, moment by moment, breath by breath. All grace to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, a simple but fruitful practice for each of us would be to pray for one another in our church family in this manner. Sometimes we struggle with, I, I, I want to pray for others in the church, or I, I, want to, I want to care for them spiritually, but I don't know how to do it. A great place to start is the prayers of the Apostle Paul. How much would we be benefited? How much would we be blessed by praying in line with Paul what he prayed for the Thessalonians that we pray those for ourselves? Maybe that would be a good exercise for you this week to just walk through 1 Thessalonians praying these things that you see there for our church family. And so this is the scope of the Gospel. We look back in faith, we labor in love, and we hope towards all that is ours in the future. But next, we see the strength of the Gospel that enables us to press on. Amidst the affliction that the church in Thessalonica endured, Paul wanted them to know that God had not let go of them. He was and is with them. He had chosen them. He had set them apart. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The strength of the Gospel is not grounded in your resolve towards God, but in His resolve towards you. The doctrine of election is tricky. It makes us easy. We see language there like He chose us, and we don't know what to do with it. Is this implying that we're just robots? God having chose some to be recipients of His grace while others have mentioned it, and those of us whom He's chosen, we're just going about our business, and, uh, 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 and He's pulling all the strings and controlling all the shots? Well, what we cannot and must not dodge is this truth. That election is something that is presented in the Bible. God choosing people, setting them apart for Himself, is evident throughout Scripture. But we must let this doctrine of election be the entrance by which we pursue a greater understanding of what it means to know God, and not something that drives us away from God. And if you'd like to investigate this further, I'd love to help you to look into it. I'd love to give you resources, love to assist you in whatever way I can. See, here's what we must grasp as Paul references the, the Thessalonian church chosen by God. Lean in with me on this. Get this. He wasn't saying chosen by God just so you can pat yourselves on the back and make yourself feel good or superior to those around you. But he's, he, throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, election is regularly mentioned as a means of encouraging Christians who are facing persecution or affliction. Writers like the Apostle Paul or Apostle Peter would remind Christians of their election 
so as to help them to know that the hottest fires of affliction would not be able to consume them because they had been set apart by God and nothing could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so a natural question some might have is, well, how do I know if I'm of the elect? You read these verses, no brother's loved by God, he's chosen you. Okay, how do I know if I'm chosen? Well, look at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Have you ever wondered how two people can be sitting in the pew at the same time, hearing the same message, come from the same background, live in the same community, have some of the same political convictions, have some of the same similar worldviews, and yet one person, the words of the gospel, the words of God's word, they rest upon them and they transform them. And yet someone else, they hear these same things and it's like, um, who is it in Charlie Brown talking, just like, you know? How is this to be? Well, the answer that I believe that explains this is that both people enter the equation entirely spiritually dead, yet God awakens those whom are His. Those whom have been chosen, those whom have been set apart. He awakens them to come to faith in Himself. And so that uh, the other one who has not been awakened, just because they haven't experienced what the Bible speaks of yet as new birth, we continue to pray that they would be awakened. For the one who has been born again, as the language of Scripture uses, God has reached down, scooped them up out of a spiritual grave and breathed new life into their bones. These are those whom Paul is writing to. So let me ask you, has the Gospel come to you in power? Where you've seen you're the one who needs this. You're the one who needs Christ. You're the one who needs to be united with Him through repentance and belief. Or is it still just interesting to you? Just fascinating? Something you're processing. Maybe other folks need it. You, you know other people in your life who, yeah, they could really use this. But you've yet to see you need it. Maybe even now as you hear this and you consider and ask these questions, this is how God is waking you up and bringing you to new birth. Do not fight against it. Oh, that He would grab hold of you. Oh, that He would grab hold of any of us who do not know Him. Because when He grabs hold, He refuses to let go. And that is what Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand. When He grabs hold, He refuses to let go. Maybe you need to hear that today, dear Christian. Who you're walking through affliction for the faith. When He grabs hold, He refuses to let go. Just one note as we conclude on the strength of of the Gospel as we move forward. Dear church family, we can press on in evangelism and missions because of the doctrine of election. We don't know who out there has been elect, who has been set apart by God in His grace. But we know that as we share the Gospel, God is going to give the feeble, tripping over ourselves words that we voice, He's going to give grace to that and bring people to new birth through our efforts and His power. So we can press on, dear Christian, because of the scope of the Gospel by which we're transformed, by the strength of the Gospel by which we've been made a new creation. Third, we press on because the struggle for the sake of the Gospel demands that we press on. Look at continuing on in verse second part of verse 5 and then verse 6. Paul says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit 
I want to let you in on a little secret. Normally, I wouldn't say this in a church setting, but it's very hot. If you need water, get some. That's not the secret. I just, I just told you I'd throw it in somewhere, and that just, that just felt like the place. But you've done a lot to be here, to bear with us in these conditions, so I want to let you in on a little secret. Are you ready for it? Faithfulness to Christ, obedience to his word, is not easy. There's the secret. Faithfulness to Christ and obedience to his word is not easy. I'm sorry if that was a big letdown. It probably was for many of you. The world does not celebrate holiness. The media does not broadcast a message that there is a king, Jesus, greater than the kings and idols and treasures of our day. And yet holiness is what we pursue as followers of Christ. And adoration and allegiance to King Jesus is what we are called to as his people. The worship of the church is, in one sense, an uprising against the kings and kingdoms of this world. We come and we gather and we say and we sing and we sit under a word that, that, that we believe has been given to us by our divine king, who has lordship over our hearts, our bodies, our minds, our words, our sexuality, our relationships, our hobbies, our entertainment, our money, our passions, our loves, our families, our friends, our calendars, our work, our home, our projects, our dreams, and our goals. And King Jesus has dominion over all of these. And that is what we gather together and we profess week by week. That's what we gather together and we trust week by week that our King will minister to us as we give worship to His name and remind ourselves that we are citizens of a higher kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. And when we start to believe and live in accordance with King Jesus as the one who is ruler over our life, affliction will come. In fact, I invite you to listen along as I read from Acts 17, 1-9. Acts 17, 1-9. I encourage you to make note of this for your own study later this week or later today. This is the story of the birth of the church in Thessalonica. So you're going to hear throughout 1 Thessalonians a story. You're going to hear repeated uh, references to the affliction that the church endured the affliction that came upon them as they believed the gospel. Acts 17, 1-9 is episode 1. Listen as I read. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, sounds good so far. Hey, Paul goes and he preaches the gospel for three weeks and people start to come to faith. What's so bad about that? Well, let's get into verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the church in Thessalonica is born. People come to faith. They start meeting in this guy Jason's house. And all of a sudden, the city has an uproar, and the people go and they bang on Jason's door, and they start trying to root out all the Christians. They take the Christians they can find. They take them before the authorities, probably uh, extort uh, uh, significant amounts of money from them, and then they let them go. 
That's the birth of the church in Thessalonica. But if we turn back to Acts, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, where we are, do you see in verse 6, Paul says, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Those are not congruent. You received the word in much affliction with joy. Affliction and joy. How does this work? How could someone receive it with this joy? I think this traces back through this line of election in the Gospel. And here's what I mean. When, when someone becomes a Christian, they don't do so solely because it makes sense. Like weighing a number of factors. Like, well, I'm at the stage of life where I should get more serious about my religious views. Uh, this seems more convenient to me. Uh, you, you, we, somebody doesn't evaluate a religion the same way they evaluate the backsplash that they're going to put in in their kitchen renovation. No. What happens is somebody becomes a Christian because previous joys have been replaced by greater joys. Previous sorrows have found in Christ a balm for that sorrow and suffering that could not be found elsewhere. And the Christian recognizes that our Lord Jesus Christ endured suffering as well. So we know that it will come upon us and we find that the Holy Spirit which indwells the Christian in the midst of your affliction, the Holy Spirit serves as a minister of your joy. He serves in order to uh, uh, burn the white-hot embers of flames in your heart as you suffer for Christ. The heart of the Christian is welded together with Christ who is your Lord. And So in our sufferings, for the name of Christ, there's a strange joy to be found there as we are united even more experientially with our Lord. I think that is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here when he talks of having joy in the midst of this affliction. So the struggle that the Christian endures in this life is one where they are pulled away from this world and suffering for the name of Christ, they are actually pulled into the wonders of fellowship with the suffering Son of God, Jesus Christ. Pulled out of the affliction of this world into the presence of Christ and into fellowship with Him in His sufferings. And as they are pulled away from the world and into Christ, the Christian has a unique ministry to fellow Christians. And this takes us to the fourth uh, means by which we press on by the Gospel. And that is the service for brothers and sisters in the Gospel enables us to press on. Look at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And now listen to verse 7. So that you became an example to believers, to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Do you see the different examples of, of like references of people who are setting examples and following after one another? Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, the church in Thessalonica began to imitate them in the faith. And then what you have now is the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, which is the regions that Thessalonica was in, these new Christians, these fledgling bands of believers, they're starting to imitate and to recount and to, and to tell others about the example of faith that they're he hearing uh, from the church in Thessalonica. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the value of steadfast, faithful trust of God in the midst of your own affliction, in the midst of opposition to your faith. Do not underestimate this as a means whereby God would strengthen your brothers and sisters in the faith. It is possible that you will feel a deeply painful, dry, hard season in the faith due to opposition that you endure in various realms of life. 
But it is also possible to very likely that as you walk through that affliction, striving to be joyful in the Lord in the midst of the sorrows, that you may not know it, but you will have a ministry to the brother or sister sitting just down the pew from you. To the brother or sister who is watching you uh, endure. And they will see in you a Savior who can be trusted because He's proved Himself sufficient to you. So, as you struggle in the faith, it might be that the greatest gift God gives to another brother or sister in the faith is you. It's easy to think of the Christian faith through a perspective like me and God, God working towards me and in me. As long as I'm good, I'm okay. But God has designed the church body to be His instrument for performing life-saving surgery on the weary hearts of fellow Christians. Sometimes Christians come to church each week because they need a heart transplant that week. They need to be reminded of the truths that we sing. And their isolation and their, and their, and their uh, distance from Christians throughout the week, it can be easy to slide into a sense of, oh, I don't know if I really believe these things. Or the, or the mountains that lie before me are strong and they are severe. But coming to gather with the saints for worship every week is the means by which God gives new life to our hearts to trust Him and to worship and to rejoice in Him. You know, as a church, we will have a reputation one way or another. Though our reputation around non-Christians may be that we do not acquiesce to the Rome of our day and to the edicts of Caesar, what better reputation could a church have amongst other churches and even amongst one another in our midst than to hope in the living God and to model unwavering trust in Him as evidenced by white-hot affection for King Jesus and a profound willingness to carry one another's burdens. Fifth, the surrender, the surrender to the living and true God of the Gospel enables us to press on. Regarding the testimony of the Macedonian and Achaean churches about, uh, uh, about the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes in verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of, the, uh, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a picture of genuine conversion. The Thessalonian church had come to find that the gods of Thessalonica were dead and that the uh, God that the Apostle Paul was preaching was the living and true God. This is what they had come to find. See, here's what our gods, our idols, do to us in this life and in this world. I have not had many surgeries done in my life. I've had a procedure or two, a couple minor surgeries, but when I had my wisdom teeth taken out back when I was uh, 17, 18 years old, the, uh, I guess it was anesthesiologist or whoever it is that puts the stuff in you to knock you out, uh, the guy came in there and he, we were just talking and, and just kind of talking lightheartedly and everything, and he put the IV in me and was about to start it, and he said, I bet you can't count down from 10 and get to zero before falling asleep. And I said, oh, you're on. And so I started counting 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, Five, four, three, and then I was out. And I woke up however long later and I realized I had not gotten to zero. False gods, idols, what they strive to do is they strive to be easy to please and low cost in investment with great pleasures promised there evermore. 
Yet what they do is they, like a python choking the life out of its prey, they squeeze the life out of the heart of the one who worships it. The heart grows more cold. The heart grows more callous. The heart grows more incapable of seeing and savoring the things that are of true, supernatural, transcendent value and worth. This is how we get bored by temporary pleasures. They, by simple leisure, squeeze the life out of the heart. By fun hobbies that become too much. And our eyes become callous to the fact that we can't see our Savior and can't see the beauty of His Word in the manner that we must. To the point that our false gods have become something that squeezes the life out of us. And this is what unliving, dead false gods do. And yet what Paul holds before us is like as verse 9 says, how you turn to God from idols to serve. How does he describe God here? The living and true God. And so it is as if the, the, the people of Thessalonica were living in a heavy fog, in a heavy haze, where they did not know all that was above the cloud line, and yet God reaches down and parts the clouds that they might see the living and true God. That they might see Him in Christ Jesus and might find that He is not some distant deity who they cannot know but they hope to please, but a distant deity who has come to them that they may know Him and that He might dwell in them even to the point where He satisfies them with a joy in the midst of affliction that is unimaginable to those who do not know Him. That He gives them a word that grabs life and grabs hold of them and captivates them and satisfies and, and, and moves within their hearts in ways in which it just seems like a boring old Bible to others. So this is conversion. To be brought to new life to see the living and true God. Brothers and sisters, this would be a good prayer for our own hearts when we are tired and, and, and don't want to spend time in His Word. Or when we are prone to believe the lie that His Word does not have anything of importance for us. Lord, help me to see You, the living and true God, through Your Word that I know is living and true. Don't let me be choked out by that which would seek to destroy me. So, we have the scope of the Gospel. We have the strength of the Gospel. We have the struggle for the sake of the Gospel that demands us to press on. We have service for brothers and sisters in the Gospel. Fifthly, we have surrender to the living and true God of the Gospel. And lastly, this all marches toward what I believe is this final point. That is, sixth, we have the Son who we await to fulfill the promises of the Gospel. He enables us to press on. Look at that in verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, this is a wonderful picture of the Christian life, of Christian obedience, of Christian discipleship in verses 9 and 10. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turn from God, turn to God from idols to do what? Serve. That's an active verb. Serve the living and true God. And then what's verse 10 hit us with? And to wait for the Son from heaven. This is the Christian life. Serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. Serving, seeking to build one another up in the body. Seeking to make sure I'm walking in obedience to the faith. Seeking to make sure that the Gospel is at the forefront of my mind. Seeking to be transformed by the work of the Spirit that indwells me and is is the means by which God is sanctifying me. 
and waiting, knowing, knowing that one day I will see the Son. And all that I am waiting in in this life, I will see Him in full glory. All that I am waiting for in this life, I will see the resurrected One and I will be able to put my hands in His nail-pierced hands and touch His nail-pierced side. and Know that He has atoned for my sins. That He has made a way for me to come to God through Him. And this is why we wait. So as I thought about it, as, I, as, as you think about the marathon of the sands, you think about the marathon of the sands and you might say, how do you do that? Run such a race in such heat. Somebody might look at the Christian life and say, how do you do that? Run such a race enduring such heat. Well, we run the race by the Gospel. It is our strength. It is the water that we drink every morning. It is the message to us to not load up our bags and try to carry all of our supplies on our own and think we will make it. It is a message to us to be emptied of ourselves daily and to live under the shade, under the umbrella of the Gospel day by day, year by year. But the question is not just how do we run it, but the question is why do we run that race? Pressing on in the Gospel in the midst of affliction, in the midst of oppression, what are we going to see throughout 1 Thessalonians? We're going to be exhorted to press on, not in the way in which we ask the question of how do we run, but why do we run? Verse 10 is our answer. We run because we wait for the Son who is in heaven. Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and He who delivers us from the wrath to come. We wait to see Him who is raised. We wait knowing that we endure affliction in this life for the name of Christ when it comes, but knowing that Christ has endured the wrath of God upon our sins, that we do not need to fear the wrath of God, and that He will keep us. He will not let us go. We will not be taken away from Him. We will not be pulled out of His grasp as we endure what we must endure in this life for the name of Christ. So brothers and sisters, let us press on by the Gospel at work in us and through us as we serve God and as we wait for the return of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we ask that You would help us to press on well, not out of our own strength or out of our own resolve, but solely and entirely by the power of the Gospel at work in us, strengthening the weary, upholding the brokenhearted, uplifting the downtrodden, building up Your church to be a people who are in line with those who came before us, like Jason and those in his household in Acts 17, who endured all they endured at the hands of those who did not know You, and yet did so for the sake of the name of Christ, and did so for the joy that was theirs through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, ministering their comfort, pressing them into Christ, who He also suffered, that we might be united with Him. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.